scripture reading this morning, we're looking at Psalm 139. And we're just going to read the first six verses, because our pastor will be picking up the verses as he brings us the message this morning. So we'll just take the first six verses, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty. For me to attain. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and understanding of this great portion of Scripture, even for our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. Father, we come before you again, continuously in your presence. We thank you, Father, for the ability to worship you by your Holy Spirit in such a way that we know we've been cleansed from all unrighteousness through that precious blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us and keeps on cleansing us even as he come before you and rests in the wonderful finished work that you did on that cross for each one of us. And so we would come before you resting, Father, not striving, but resting in the wonderful grace that's in Christ Jesus. And so we would ever give you much praise that you have kept us and brought us through the wonderful ways of life that you've given us in such a way that we can grow in grace and knowledge of you. And so we'd pray, Father, even today, that we might know you better, that we might grow in grace more today, that we might be touched by your word, that we might be a people who are growing in the knowledge of God that we have by your word and through your teaching, by our pastor. And so we just pray, Father, for our pastor brings that message today, that each one of us might have that clear voice from you saying, walk in this way, walk ye in it. And so we thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will ever come to the Father except by you who loved us and gave yourself for us. And so we come, Father, this morning to praise you and to come before you to pray for our leadership in our church family and for our ability to submit ourselves to that wonderful leadership you have chosen by your Holy Spirit to the voice of your people. So we come before you today to praise you this morning. We come before you this morning to pray not only for our leadership but for every heart here today that your spirit will touch us in such a way that we will be continuously growing, continuously moving, that our old man might perish, but the man inside us is growing in knowledge of you. Bless us, Lord. Touch our people. Touch our sick that we've mentioned. Touch our aged. Touch our young people, Father. Touch them in such a way that they will be protected to know that as the world grows darker, you are more of the light of the world than anything else. So bless our young, older, and unwell. Bless our shut-ins, Father. Bless Rhonda and Allison. And we think of Ed today, Father. We bless in every way Ed and his good wife, Teresa. Bless them, Father, where they are right now. Use them for your glory. Touch them with your presence and with your person and your power, Father. We pray for the Otterbein family too, Lord. Bless them too, Lord. Use them in a wonderful way as they think of Earl and his wonderful work he's done throughout his life for your glory. Bless the Otterbein family. Bless 
Jean Curie and Judy, Lord, in every way. And bless our missionaries, Father. How we think of them today in a far-flung world. Away from us, some of them, some at home, and some in the, your presence in a wonderful way. So bless our missionaries. Bless our country today, Father, and this good day that's called Canada Day today, that we know is really a dominion of yours from sea to sea. And so we would ever pray for our country and our leadership even today, Lord. Help our leaders in every way to bring us back to the knowledge that our Christian heritage is Christian and not something else. So bless us, Lord, and bless us that we celebrate. Bless us for the freedom we have in this country, Father. And bless each heart that we gather here today, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a, uh, a word here before, before I launch into, uh, into my sermon. We've actually got a, a petition here um, to the House of Commons um, standing against abortion. And uh, you've, you've got there on the cover of your bulletin, you see a picture of a, a glorious little baby's foot. And, and we see there that the words from Psalm 139 to a reminder that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that, that God knit us together in our mother's wombs, and that every life is precious in his sight. And uh, I believe that, uh, that, that we will be held accountable to future generations for the atrocity um, that is abortion. So I would encourage you to, uh, to sign um, the petition. And, and we, as a church, as we think about how we can best um, spend the, the resources that, uh, that, that God has given us, we're thinking about what we can do as a church in order to, uh, to, to stem the tide and to stand against um, things like abortion. And so, uh, so please um, don't forget that. It's so easy um, in our culture where it's, it's, it's done behind closed doors in a hospital to, to really forget um, what's happening, not just in our city, but, but in so many cities around the globe. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, you are the beginning of wisdom and you are the end of wisdom. And so, Lord, we, we know from your word that, that you are the source of all wisdom, that you give wisdom to your people by your spirit. So, Lord, we pray that you will help us this morning to apprehend things which are far too deep for us to understand. Lord, we ask that, that in some measure that you would give us an understanding of your wisdom and that we would be even more in awe of you as we behold your glory. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, the fear of the Lord is one of the virtues that I'm, the virtues that I'm hoping the Lord is going to instill in us this morning and every week as we go through our study on the attributes of God. But people really don't like the concept of the fear of the Lord very much in our culture, do they? It's really no surprise because our culture really is, is characterized by a disrespect 
for authority in general, let alone for the divine authority. And when we refer to the fear of the Lord, we're speaking of of a holy reverence, a humble bowing before the Almighty God. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our study of the attributes of God as laid out in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Catechism asks, what is God? And then responds, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. When we begin to better understand who God is, we are humbled in his presence, and we're better able to worship him and to give thanks to him for all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Last week, we studied God's immutability, the fact that God never changes. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is not changing. God is not growing. God is not evolving. I've heard people say that, that God was, was angry in the Old Testament and is loving in the New Testament. Now, both are true, but both are also only half true, and so they amount to a lie. What further evidence do you need of God's love in the Old, God's love in the Old Testament than the fact that he did not destroy the rebellious people of Israel when they rebelled against him again and again and again? And what further evidence if you need of God's wrath in the New Testament than the book of Revelation? When those who have not turned away from their sin will call on the the mountains and rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But there is no greater evidence for the love of God and for the wrath of God than the cross of Christ. And this morning we will also see that there is no greater example of the wisdom of God than the cross of Christ. It's my hope and my prayer that that nobody who is sitting here today will face the wrath of God. But there are people here who currently have not turned away from their sins. There are people here who are still trusting in their own righteousness, trusting in their own wisdom, who have not put their faith in the God of all wisdom. So it's my hope and my prayer that as we study these things together, even here this morning, that we will come away changed. That sinners will turn in repentance away from their sin and put their faith in Christ, and that those who are truly born again will be spurred on to greater love of God and greater holiness. This morning we're going to be looking at God's wisdom and specifically how God is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his wisdom, just as he is in the rest of his attributes. Paul Washer says that God possesses perfect knowledge of all things, past, present, and future, immediately, effortlessly, simultaneously, and exhaustively. God is omniscient. He is all-seeing. 
And he's not just all-seeing of everything that is happening right now. He is all-seeing of everything that is happening throughout his universe, throughout eternity, all at the very same moment. This, beloved, is the God that we serve. Nothing is outside the realm of his knowledge. Jerome said, or thought rather, that it was unworthy that of the divine majesty to let it down to this, that he should know how many gnats are born or die every moment, or the number of cinches and fleas on the earth. But the Bible clearly points to God's exhaustive knowledge of such things. A sparrow doesn't fall apart from God's knowledge. He counts and names the very stars of heaven. All the hairs of our head are numbered. This, beloved, is the God that we serve. And the Bible teaches that not only does God know the future infallibly, but he knows it because he has also decreed the future infallibly. Next week, we're going to be looking at God's omnipotence. And God's omnipotence is closely tied to his omniscience. God is all-seeing and God is all-powerful. The two go together. God's decrees that have been foreordained in eternity past, apart from time, will never fail. And as we study the case, as we study for for uh, God, as we study God's um, wisdom, it's the same as it was for God's eternality and His infinity and His immutability. We're launching into deep waters. We're launching into 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 depths that are are far beyond the ability of our human minds to plumb. But this is an extremely important study for us to undertake. It really doesn't bother me too much that that God is far beyond my ability to understand. It's my joy to know God more and more every day. And even though I will never know him exhaustively, it will be my joy throughout all eternity to get to know him more and more. A.W. Tozer said that, that what comes into our minds when thinking about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about God, the thoughts that you have about God and towards God are the most important things about you. And how much time do you spend in the course of your day, how much time in the, in the course of my day do, do we spend thinking, meditating on who God is? But it's, it's, it's when you begin to get a taste of these things, you want more of these things. The more you get to know God, the more you want to get to know God. As you, as you know the depths of his wisdom and his love, it, it spurs you on to study who he is according to his word. So even though we, we can't begin to really grasp or comprehend these things, it's helpful it's helpful for us to stretch our minds and our hearts as we think about who God is, especially this morning as we think about his wisdom. As David said in Psalm 139, verse 6, 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And we need wisdom in order to begin to understand God's wisdom. And we need his Holy Spirit for help. We cannot do this in our own strength. I was talking to someone the other day about, about my inability to, in, to understand the Bible prior to coming to Christ. My mind was so messed up because of the, the drugs that I'd been doing, and my heart was so hard because of my years of willful sin that when I read about the Son of Man in Scripture, I actually thought that that referred to the devil. I needed a work of regeneration to be done in my heart in order to begin to understand the depth of my sin and to begin to understand the holiness of God. And that is true for us as we study God's wisdom this morning. We need his spirit to reveal these things to us. According to J.I. Packer, if we want wisdom, we need to reverence God and we need to receive his word. Packer says that in Scripture, wisdom is a moral quality as well as an intellectual quality. More than mere intelligence or knowledge, just as it is more than mere cleverness or cunning. To be truly wise in the Bible sense, one's intelligence and cleverness must be harnessed to a right end. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is, in fact, the practical side of moral goodness. So God's wisdom means that God knows exhaustively the perfect end of all things, the perfect goal of all things, and that God, in his supreme wisdom, always chooses the best and perfect way in order to achieve those ends. That is God's wisdom. Robert Raymond explains that true wisdom and knowledge depends entirely upon God's wisdom and knowledge, and God's word is the only source of utter and utterly objective and dependable source we have of that knowledge. It is only in God's light that we can see light. Psalm 36, 9. Many people have a, have a different idea of, of who God is. We live in a relativistic age in which People believe that you can have your truth and I can have my truth and they can both be true. These sorts of things make, make a, theologian's, a, a theologian of the Bible, they make his head spin. In the same way they would make a mathematician's head spin. Two plus two always equals four. If you think it's six and I think it's two, we're both wrong. There's only one right answer. There's only one right understanding of who God is, and it is only through God's word that we can understand it. It is only through God's word that we can understand him or even begin to understand him. And Robert Raymond, again, he points out three key areas in which God's wisdom is displayed. And, and he does this from Psalm, or sorry, from Isaiah 44, verses 24 to 28. He shows us God's wisdom in creation, God's wisdom in revelation, and God's word in redemption. So please turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 44. 
verse 24. Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So I want us to look at these these three areas where we can see God's wisdom revealed. God's wisdom in creation, God's word in revelation, and God's word in redemption. First of all, God's word, God's wisdom in creation, verse 24. God created everything. God created everything ex nihilo. God created everything out of nothing. I could just sit down now and and cause us just to, to think about these things for the remainder of our time. And, and we should marvel. God created everything out of nothing. Isaiah 42.5, The Lord created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it? Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it? Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made the universe through his omnipotence, and God created the universe through his omniscience. So we sing to the Lord a new song, for by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Psalm 33. And give thanks to the Lord of lords, him who by understanding made the heavens. Psalm 136, every mountain, every hill, every cloud, every grain of sand, every bird in the sky, every fish in the sea, the Lord God made them all. Even the stars of the heavens, he determines the number of the stars and he gives, them to, gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power, his understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 147 verses 4 and 5. God determines where every single drop of rain will fall. God has determined that over the past several weeks, we would get an inordinate amount of rain in the normally dry southern southern Okanagan. So we have floods, and we have people that were not able to make it out to church because of flooding. But God has also ordained that rain would be withheld from areas like Colorado, where there are now wildfires raging. And we might be tempted to question the Lord. We might be tempted to to ask with Job, why, Lord? But the Lord answers Job in chapter 38, saying essentially, who are you to question me? He says in verses 4 to 7, 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Our response should be like that of Job. We should place our hands over our mouths in awe of our supremely wise God. But God just did not make the the heavens and the earth and everything in them and then just sit down like some divine watchmaker. God is not some impersonal God far off. God made you. God made you. Those three little words that have such weight. Let's just meditate on that for a moment. God made you. Now when I talk here about meditation, I don't mean emptying our mind and chanting some mantra. When we speak of, of Christ, as Christians of meditation, we're referring to something quite contrary to the, the New Age concept of Eastern mysticism. We're not emptying our minds, we're filling our minds with holy thoughts about God from His Word. We're considering, we're pondering, we're looking at it from different angles. So it would be changed. So we meditate on the fact that God made us. This is what David does in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book there were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. On Friday evening, my dear friends Jason and Casey became the proud parents of Holly Eve Cashel. This was their, their third child and their first daughter. And uh, we were here on Friday night at family night, and, and Jane um, texted me through a photo of, of Jason looking down in wonder at his newly born daughter. And the, the thought made my heart melt. As I considered the, the miracle of life, and, and I think also in part because, Lord willing, fatherhood is is not in the far too distant future for me. But I marveled. Think about it, that a man and a woman can come together to bring new life into the world. It is a miracle. It is a miracle. And now, because of modern technology, we can have have images through ultrasound of, of a baby growing in the uterus. This is something that, that David would have, would have loved to have seen. And it's amazing how quite often now people who are pro-life are actually using ultrasound as, in the fight against abortion because they, they, they encourage women who are wanting to have an abortion to have an ultrasound. And when, when the woman sees that little life in her womb, 
She realizes that this is not just some parasitic piece of tissue. This is a baby. This is a human life. Beloved, we, we, need, we need to think about the fact that our lives, our very lives, have been made by God. But in order to really appreciate what's going on here, you need more than ultrasound. You need the Holy Spirit, as David did. We need God to do that work in our hearts to help us to see and to help us to marvel. Think a moment for, for just for a moment about, about the human eye. God has caused that that the pupil would dilate through a muscle called the iris to let sun come through into your lens, which is then refracted back onto your retina, which is filled with, with countless rods and cones that, that, that translate that image. It's, it's photoreceptive and then transfers that image to the optic nerve, and that, which travels then along the optic nerve to the brain that, that is able to interpret and to make sense of those images. And that is just one of our organs. God caused two gametes to come together and cause those cells to multiply again and again and again and to differentiate so that one would be a skin cell, one would be a blood cell, one would be a bone cell. That organs and hands and feet and fingernails and eyebrows would be made. This is all at the hand of God in his infinite wisdom. This is a miracle of design. Evolutionists postulate that, that these things happened through a series of random genetic mutations that just happened to come together to form life. But if each of these, each of these things have to work together, they have to have come together simultaneously. A, a cornea without a retina, would be useless. A lens without a pupil, a pupil without an iris, would be useless. These things were designed by God. They were created by God. The idea that things would, would come together and develop on their own is ridiculous. It's like dropping a bomb in a junkyard and ending up with a 747. But neither did God, God did not just create you as a, or just create the processes that would, would result in organs like eyes. God created you personally. God knit you together in your mother's womb. Fellow Christian, God foreknew you. He set his love on you before the foundation of the world. He ordained every single moment that would ever happen in your life. Every moment. No accidents. All of his purposes and plans for you come together to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. 
Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Your every moment is under his sovereign control. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom, Psalm 90, 12. Even think about the circumstances that came into play for you to meet your husband or wife. A so-called chance meeting here or there, ordained by God, so that you would meet that person at the very moment when he ordained that you would be ready to meet that person. Even just just yesterday, as as I was preparing um, the story of, of of Jane and me for for our website, I was thinking about the the circumstances that conspired. Thinking about my missionary friends, the sconces who were supposed to be in Australia for one hour on their way to Papua New Guinea as missionaries, and they got stranded there for six weeks. At the perfect time in my life when I was ripe for a deeper understanding of who God was, I was ripe for an understanding of the sovereignty of God that catapulted me into greater depths and greater growth. I wouldn't be here as a pastor if it wasn't for those six weeks that the sconces spent in Australia. I also wouldn't have met Jane because it was through Steve's son, Nate, as he was looking for direction. And because Marcy had been to Eternity Bible College, I recommended it as a possibility for him. And he went there and ended up at Jane's church. And that's how we met. None of these things are accidental. These things are foreordained by God. Pre-known and predetermined by God. Every missed phone call, every red light, every missed bus, think about the effect that it has on your life. And God is sovereign over every single one. And not just the phone calls and traffic lights and buses in your life, But every phone call and every traffic light and every bus all around the world at every single moment ordained according to the wisdom of God. Next, I want us to see God's wisdom in Revelation. God's wisdom and revelation. And we see this there in verses 25 and 26. We see that God frustrates the signs of liars, makes fools of diviners, turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Nevertheless, he confirms the word of his servant, fulfills the counsel of his messengers. God God does not limit his knowledge of the future as the open theist says. He does not have a limited knowledge of the future and is is helpless to know every part of the future like the process theologian says. God's knowledge of all things is exhaustive. He knows everything that will ever take place in every corner of his universe. In 1 Corinthians 1.19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29 when he says that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And he goes on to say that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. 
Those of the world think they're wise, but they are fools for not turning away from their sin and turning to Jesus Christ and not bowing their knee to him. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. And one example of, of, a, of a so-called wise counselor who's whose knowledge was frustrated, is that of Ahithophel, David's traitorous counselor. From 2 Samuel 15 through through 17. Now, Ahithophel sided with Absalom against King David. And he told Absalom to openly go to David's concubines in the presence of Israel so that Israel would know that, that Uh, that Absalom and David were enemies. Now, this was was wicked counsel. This was wicked counsel, but there is, in a worldly sense, a certain wisdom in it. And Ahithophel's counsel was respected. 2 Samuel 16.23 says that in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and by Absalom. Now, it wasn't that Ahithophel's counsel lined up with the word of God, but it was considered to be as wise as the word of God. In 2 Samuel 17.1, Ahithophel told Absalom to give him 12,000 soldiers to pursue David and his men quickly while David was, was weary and discouraged. But the advice, even though it seemed good to Absalom, God laid it on his heart to also seek the counsel of Hushai the Archite. And Hushai was actually there as sort of a double agent. He was there at the request of David to go and pretend to be for Absalom when really he was still working and allied to David. So Absalom asked Hushai also his counsel, and Hushai told Absalom that Ahithophel's counsel wasn't good, that David was in a rage and that he had hidden himself and would ambush and destroy any army that was immediately sent against him. And that would cause a resounding defeat against Absalom and so would would put fear into the hearts of his men. And this gave David a chance to escape. But in verse 14, we see that the wisdom of the Lord was behind all this. We read, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So God was even behind this this wicked counselor, and ultimately frustrated his plans in order to defeat Absalom, the enemy of David, but also the enemy of God. So Ahithophel went home and committed suicide. So the counsel of men will be frustrated. Many are the plans in the heart of the man, but it is the Lord who establishes his steps. 
God ordains all of our steps, every step. But, the, but still, he is not the author of sin. J.R. Packer explains that, that God's wisdom cannot be frustrated in the way that Ahithophel's good counsel, so-called good counsel, was thwarted by God's supreme wisdom. God knows the end from the beginning, and God ordains the end from the beginning. Nevertheless, he confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Verse 26, throughout the scriptures, we see that God gives his prophets wisdom and knowledge about future events. Prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Daniel prophesied events that would not be fulfilled for hundreds or even thousands of years. Isaiah actually prophesied Cyrus, king of Persia, by name. By name. Now, this was around the year 700 BC, but Cyrus didn't come on the scene for another 160 years. Now, this leaves those who question the Bible or skeptics scrambling to try to, to, to redate the things in Scripture, but they cannot deny the clear testimony of Scripture. They cannot deny that these prophecies were fulfilled according to God's perfect plan. These things cause us to, to worship. They cause, it to, they cause our hearts to delight in the wonder of our omniscient God. So we cry with Daniel in Daniel 2, 20-22. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things, and he knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. So God gives the prophets their wisdom and their knowledge. But it's not just prognostication. It's predestination. It's not just foreseeing the future. It is foreordaining the future. God knows the future because God makes the future happen. God's wisdom can never fail because it is tied to his omnipotence. God doesn't just know all things. He makes it all happen. But again, he is still not the author of sin. Again from Packer, power is as much God's essence of wisdom as, sorry, as is his omniscience, governing, governing omnipotence, infinite power ruled by infinite wisdom. It's a basic biblical description of the divine character. Now, we're going to, to, to focus on God's infinite power next week, but these two attributes are inexorably tied together. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, Job 9.4, with his wisdom and his strength, Job 12.13. He is mighty in strength and wisdom, Job 36.5. He is strong in power. His understanding is unsearchable. Wisdom and might are his, Daniel 2.20. But there is no event... There is no event that is more clearly tied to the sovereignty of God. There is more, no event that is more clearly foreordained by God and more prophesied in Scripture than the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus was delivered 
into the hands of wicked men by the, the counsel of God. God foreordained the death of Jesus at the hands of wicked men. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, that God raised him from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And it also in chapter 315. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. He was delivered, nonetheless, by the predeterminate counsel of God. Look in in Psalms chapter 22. This is just one of of many, many Psalms that, that clearly, clearly point to the cross of Christ. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the very words that were uttered by Christ on the cross. Verse 17. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. This is mind-blowing. This was a thousand years before Christ came. But there is no passage of old, in Old Testament Scripture that more clearly points to the cross of Christ than Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. This is the gospel preached 700 years before Christ came. And this brings me to my final point, where we see God's wisdom in redemption. God's wisdom in redemption. 
from Isaiah 44, verses 26 to 28. Now here we see the prophecy specifically speaking to Cyrus, speaking about Cyrus. Remember, this was 160 years before Cyrus came. Cyrus is, is mentioned by name there in verse 28 and again in chapter 45, verse 1. Cyrus was the, the wicked king of Persia, but also the anointed one of God. This would have, have been shocking to Israel, that a pagan would be God's anointed one. And as the anointed one, Cyrus, who would destroy Babylon and cause the, the deliverance of Israel, was a forerunner or a type of Christ. Cyrus's anointing by God pointed ahead to the coming of Christ 700 years later. So Cyrus, the, the ruthless pagan king of Persia, was God's anointed. And his deliverance of Israel from Babylon points to Christ's deliverance of us from sin. And there is no greater display of God's wisdom than the cross of Christ. No human mind could ever have devised such a plan. That a holy God would take on human flesh. That he would live a righteous life. That he would fully obey. And then that he would die on a cross at the hands of sinful men. And that the Father's wrath would be poured out on him instead of on his people. God's perfect wisdom, that his holiness and his justice would be there on display at the same time as his love and his grace and his mercy. This is God's wisdom. This is God's wisdom. And for the Christian, God's omniscience gives us hope because we know that, that God who is sovereign over all things, is in control of every single aspect of our life, that he knows our frame, that we are yet dust. But just as God's omniscience is the, the source of hope for the believer, it is the source of despair for the unbeliever. Because God, in his omniscience, knows, knows every wicked thought that enters into their heart. He knows every wicked deed that they think was done in secret. But beloved, that is not just true of the unbeliever. God knows every wicked thought that comes into our hearts. God knows every wicked deed that we commit thinking it's in secret. God sees it all. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4.13 Beloved, 
even though, even though Christ knows our sin intimately, far better than even we know our sin. He sent Christ to die for us. For us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So finally, an accurate understanding of God's wisdom will involve a transformation of our understanding of what's good for us. It's so easy for us to misinterpret trials as a failure of God to give us what's best for us. But it's imperative that we understand that the circumstances that we are currently facing or whatever circumstance we will, we will ever face come from a God who is good and sovereign and wise, and they are the best of all possible circumstances. Think about that. Even the trial that you are currently facing is ordained by God because he loves you and he wants to make you like Jesus. Any failure to understand this is a failure to understand why we are here or our, our purpose which the Westminster Confession of Faith proclaims is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Beloved, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8, 16 and 17. God is working out his plan in the lives of every single man, woman, and child around the face of the globe at all times. And he has been doing so since the dawn of creation. His plan cannot be thwarted. He will achieve his purposes, his purposes throughout history. He moves messengers to various places in order to proclaim the gospel so that his elect will hear and repent and be saved. And God will do whatever it takes in order to transform us into the image of Christ. We need to have a, a heavenly perspective about these things. Think about Paul. If Paul had an earthly perspective when he received his 40 lashes less one five times or his, his being beaten by rods three times or being stoned or shipwrecked three times or being in danger from rivers and robbers and Jews and Gentiles and robbers and false brothers and, and dangers in the city and the wilderness and at sea and toil and hardship without sleep and hungry and thirsty. If Paul had a human perspective in the midst of these things, he would, would think that God had somehow failed either in his wisdom or his goodness or his omnipotence. But Paul had a divine perspective in these things, and we should strive to have a divine perspective in these things. We might be tempted to, to question God or to rebel against him in our hearts or to murmur like the children of Israel, of Israel or to engage in active sin. But we must take these thoughts captive to obedience in Christ. 
We need to consider that it is in the midst of trials that we often experience the most growth. And that shouldn't surprise us because that is exactly the way God has ordained that it would be. Consider these words from Samuel Rutherford, the Puritan pastor who was banished from preaching in his church because of a book that he wrote defending the doctrines of grace. He said, Would to God that all his kingdom and all know that God, what is between Christ and me in this prison, what kisses, what embraces, and love communion. I take up his cross in my arms with joy. I bless it. I rejoice in it. Suffering for Christ is my garland. I would not exchange Christ for 10,000 worlds. No, if the comparison could stand, I would not exchange Christ with heaven. It's a glorious mystery, and it calls us to cry out with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Let's pray. Our omniscient, omnipotent God, Lord, we can only bow in your presence for these things are too wonderful for us. Lord, would you help us to preach these truths about you in the face of our lives, whatever we face. Lord, I pray that it would cause us to turn with hearts of love and thanksgiving and childlike trust, knowing, Lord God, that you have ordained the end from the beginning. And Lord, that you will fulfill all of your purposes in our lives. And Lord, that you who foreknew us before the foundation of the world have ordained that we would be transformed 